0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Anarchy SF, a podcast companion to the Anarchy SF website. By the way, if you still don't get that choke, it's from a different (laughs) podcast called the Beef and Dairy Network, which we highly recommend that you listen to. And until you do, don't do it now. Listen to us. I'm Eden, and I have Yanai with me. Hello, Yanai. Hello, hello. And if you've somehow forgotten what this podcast is about, it's a podcast where we talk about science fiction, leftist theory, anarchism, and more and this time we have a
1: doozy yeah but first we have to acknowledge that it's a special time is it a special time yeah we have our first socialist anarchist president
0: oh yeah 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 you're right the no malarkey front has triumphed in the united states
1: i've already been so happy to be in one of three designated anarchist territories designated by the doj yeah but now I also have an anarchist president, so everything old, is very good. Yeah, good
0: old New York City, the home of Wall Street, and also <laughs> anarchism. Somehow. Yeah, famously compatible organizations. You remember that game by Steve Jackson, the guy who did Munchkin? What was it called when you play, like, Conspiracies? Illuminati. Something like that, yeah. And you could have, like, weird relationships between... You know, the Russian mind-controlled squids and the GOP. That's no longer... You can't play that game anymore because it just sounds like history. Yeah, it's just just reality. Yeah, it's just political commentary. So, in favor of outpacing reality and keeping things weird, even as reality becomes weirder, how's that for a segue? That's a good segue. Yeah, we are going to be discussing Jeff Vandermeer's Annihilation. If you know anything about me, maybe you've heard some of the other podcasts that I do or just read some stuff that I've written online, Jeff Vandermeer is one of my favorite currently working authors, and Annihilation is one of my favorite books. It was released in 2014, and I picked it up in Paris. I think it was 2015, and I read it in one sitting. And I mean like one sitting. My partner wanted to go to sleep, and so she wanted me to turn off the light, so I went to the bathroom and read it (laughs) on the toilet so that I wouldn't bother her. It is a book about, very briefly, we will spoil it, but a non-spoiler intro to the book. There is an agency called the Southern Reach that is monitoring an area called Area X. It is not specifically said where it is, but Jeff Vandermeer lives in Florida, and Florida plays a huge part in most of his writing. Mm -hmm. So it's safe to assume that it's in Florida. Also, the fauna and the flora fit the Florida ecology. And no one can go into this area and come out unscathed. Technology fails. It is surrounded by a wall of shimmering something. Rabbits multiply in the Mm -hmm. hundreds. And weird things happen in the zone. And we follow an expedition... To be exact, the twelfth expedition of experts, scientists. So it's a biologist, an anthropologist, a psychologist, and a surveyor, which is important because those are the character names who are crossing over into the area to see what they can find after the previous expedition disappeared without a trace. Well, with some traces, but very fragmentary traces. Yeah. From there kind of unspools this kind of psychological body horror, and what has been dubbed cli-fi, climate science fiction.
1: Yeah, I will say, I think there is some body horror here. I feel like if body horror is something that frightens you, this book isn't heavy with it. Right.
0: Yes, it's not Cronenberg levels, but it does have discussions of bodies being morphed. Annihilation was followed by two other books to become the Southern Reach trilogy. The books are very different to each other. And they figure into the larger Vandermeer corpus of books in interesting ways. Annihilation is his most popular novel. It won the Nebula Mm -hmm. and the Shirley Jackson Award. And it was also adapted to a film by Alex Garland, a.k.a. the guy who did Ex Machina
1: and a bunch of other stuff. And the movie is good. And I think the movie has an interesting relationship with the book because it's not an adaptation of the story the story unfolds very differently in the book and in the movie Mm -hmm. but it's also not not the same story it shares a lot of characteristics so I feel like it's synergistic if you've watched the movie you should read the book if you've read the book I think you should watch the movie
0: yeah I would say it's a parallel universe version of the same story yeah and Jeff was involved in the making of the movie but he didn't have like you know final cut or whatever. And he has been kind of ambiguous in his relationship to the movie. When it first came out, he was very much on board. But then he slowly started to make some of his criticisms more known on social media. But overall, he says he's pleased with the movie, although he would have done some things differently. But going back to the corpus of Jeff's books, before Annihilation, before he hit it big, he also wrote a series of extremely good books, all housed under the ambergris mythology i guess or corpus telling the story of a city with a subterranean world of mushrooms existing below it mm-hmm. which should echo for people who have read Annihilation and after it he's written Born and inside the Born universe which he is currently exploring as his main sort of thrust he also published The Strange Bird and Dead Astronauts he recently published a book called Peculiar Peril which I just finished like literally 30 minutes ago oh that is kind of Harry Potter, but LSD (laughs) and cli and weird stuff. It is really frivolous and funny. And he's also going to publish another book this year called Hummingbird Salamander that's going to be about eco-terrorism.
1: Yeah, I think this is a book for someone who wants to get into more heady science fiction. Not like hard science fiction, not like describing how the ships work, but like heady, like with hashtag themes or something. Very abstract. Because it is heady, but it's also short and very kind of narratively focused. Like, it knows where it's going. So, the reason I listed off all
0: those books is just to say that Vandermeer has been at the spearhead of this movement called The New Weird. He Mm -hmm. has even edited and published alongside his wife Anne Vandermeer, who is a publisher, anthologies titled... The New Weird, and The Weird. And The New Weird is a literary genre that has been taking shape over the last, depends who you ask, but the last two or three decades. It includes authors like M. John Harrison, who wrote The Centauri Device, which you might read if you could ever get your hands on it. China Miéville is considered to be New Weird. Really? Yeah. Okay. Elvia Wilk, that I've recommended a few times is considered doing weird fiction or new weird. And you also have stuff like theory fiction that spun off of it, Reza Nagastrani, and even our good friend Nick Land is somehow tangently related to new weird fiction.
1: Oh, well, that's one kind of
0: weird. Yeah, I mean, he's not our friend. He's a conservative piece of shit, but his early work had a lot of relationships with weird and new weird. And Vandermeer, his literature oscillates between this is fucking bizarre and every page that I'm reading is a struggle, but I love it, which is something like Dead Astronauts, mm-hmm. and something like Annihilation, which is weird, but like you said, is more accessible. Yeah. There's no metafiction, there's no games with the format, there's an unreliable narrator,
1: but to be honest, we're so far gone that unreliable narrators are now mainstream. That's no longer like real... And also it's not unreliable in some kind of, you know, mindfuck way where you're not even sure what you're reading. The ways in which this narrator is unreliable, I think, are, I mean, you can have like your own interpretation of what is probably the reality, but it doesn't kind of harm, I think, the narrative flow. So sometimes what happens to me with an unreliable narrator is that I get to a point in the book and I'm like, Mm -hmm. I don't know what this story even is am i just reading the babblings of someone who's mad and incomprehensible and i sometimes get lost like that but here yes the narrator like is very clearly unreliable but you can still follow her i think that
0: so that's what i meant when there's no metafiction and the format doesn't get messed with because the structure of the sentences words are used right instead of half words or broken up sentences of something like house of leaves for example all Jeff's own recent work, Dead Astronauts, where sentences meld with each other and narratives are going on at the same time. However, an important word about the narrator, annihilation, and a word that's going to come up a bunch of times on this episode, is uncanny. Yeah. So you get this faint feeling of something that is wrong and of an incomplete picture being told to you by the narrator. It's not unreliable in the sense that, like you said, the very structure of the story breaks down, but something feels off, right? Something feels not exactly accurate. And one of the main quote-unquote theories, I don't think it's a theory, I think it's supported in the book, is that basically from the second that the expedition enters Area X, they become infiltrated by the entity, whatever it is. Right, there's some sort of entity working on the area. Slight spoilers here, but not really. And from the second that they are inside the zone, their perspectives can no longer be trusted because yeah. they are infected, right? And then during the second and the third book, this gets amplified by like reality breaking down and the question being asked, is any of this actually happening or is this all like a mind unspooling, right? Is this all like, neurons firing and biological processes being interrupted and so on so that should give you a taste of what this book is like the other thing that i should add at least for myself and i think for many others it manages to be scary as well because it has this faint feeling of the uncanny of something that is always at the corner of your eye something that is always one step ahead of you or behind you rather and i'm not a big horror fan but i'm not easily scared and this book You know, I wasn't jumping at shadows, but it got under my skin.
1: So one thing I want to say before we get into the discussion of the actual book is about why we chose to cover this book. This isn't a typical book for us, I think, because it doesn't directly interact with kind of leftist thought, except perhaps when it comes to climate change. Mm -hmm. But I think it is a book about knowledge and it tackles ideas about knowledge, what is knowable, how to deal with the unknowable in ways that I find very illuminating and so useful for people interacting with or even trying to share and proliferate theory. So I think that for me was the guiding link because I was reading this and being like, I need to record a podcast about this. And I still want it to be connected to the theme of the whole podcast. So I need to find like my angle on this.
0: I agree with that. But I also want to say that there is only one struggle. And that struggle is climate change. All other struggles exist within the struggle of climate change, which is no longer a struggle to stop climate change, but a struggle to adapt to climate change. And you cannot be a leftist without talking about climate change. And we need new ways, the left especially needs new ways to think about the future of humanity on the planet and the future of humanity in interaction that's, with the class. That's also true. Yeah, I mean, famously, there's that awful Marx quote that says that the lowliest human is mightier than the bee <laughs> because the human, you know, whatever creative capacities while well, the bee is a dead drone, that doesn't work anymore. And there's a lot of really, really good stuff. Bellamy Foster, for example, is a really important scholar writing about green Mm -hmm. Marxism. But this, even though Jeff, I don't think identifies as a leftist, I believe he's on the liberal, American liberal left, I think his way of thinking and looking at the human subject in relation to climate and how we need to break down a lot of the old structures for understanding ourselves, our societies, our modes of production are incredibly important for anyone doing any sort of, like, leftist politics. One
1: big struggle, you see this with the Sunrise Movement, is trying to connect, it's not trying to connect the unconnected, it's trying to connect the connected, because it's trying to kind of rescue climate change from the specter of environmentalism that started as a very bourgeois movement that was all about, like... Nomi yeah. Klein writes that it was about the hunting grounds of, you know, outdoorsy bourgeois. And yeah. it's trying to kind of distance itself from that because when people talk about climate change and you try to think about it as working class politics, people start to talk about, wait, what about oil jobs? What about, you know, we need the energy so we have the production to get things to people. And it's a very old way of thinking. And we should acknowledge that, again, climate change is going to happen. It's going to... Affect working class people first. It is happening already and affecting working class people. We need to get used to thinking about it like that. And we need to make that connection. Yeah.
0: So I didn't want to start on this point because it's the most complex point that Mm -hmm. I have to make. But this segue is like too perfectly lined up for me to not take it. Spoiler
1: territory starts here.
0: Yeah. It starts here and also like. (laughs) I'm sorry, but there's going to be a lot of name dropping and there's going to be a lot of delays this episode, so apologies in advance. But actually, we start from Michel Foucault, right? Okay. Or maybe I'll preface before the name dropping. So what you just said about the need to go beyond environmentalism and the need to go beyond the way that we perceive the climate struggle so far is inherently a question That touches on all aspects of philosophy and politics, but I think it begins, or the problem so far begins, in the knowledge of the self, right? And the distinction between us and nature, what is sometimes called the bifurcation of nature, right? Separating it into man-made things and natural things. Yes. Breaking this distinction down is, I'm not going to say it's the first step, But it's an incredibly important step because until we do so, we cannot reconfigure our relationship with nature in a way that is sustainable, right? As long as nature is an object and we are subjects, Mm -hmm. and as long as that's true, the only interaction possible is exploitation because that is the only language possible between subjects and objects in a traditional sense. Subjects are dynamic, they move, they act. And objects are passive, inert, they are acted upon. And that's, for example, what allows Denmark to slaughter yeah. its entire mink population to stop a new strain of COVID. I'm not even saying that they shouldn't do that, right? I don't have an opinion because I'm not an expert on public health. But I am saying that without the subject-object distinction, we would never have been in the first place in the place that Denmark has A mink population in captivity that is harvested for its fur, right? That is something you do to an object, right? So in postmodernism, surprise, this idea of breaking down this distinction is called becoming other. And it has that weird (laughs) little dash that French philosophers and German philosophers use to denote that it's not two words, right? It's sort of a mode, that usually typifies German concepts, yeah. right? Because German concepts can be constructed very easily from other worlds. So it's not becoming space other, it is becoming other, which is a kind of mood or perspective. And famously, the main philosopher that dealt with becoming other was Deleuze and Guattari, of course. And in Deleuze's philosophy, becoming other is this attempt to stop being a subject or stop centralizing the subject. I know. I'm sorry. Okay. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll try to like keep it as simple as I can because it took me like 50 times to read these articles to understand what they are. So in order to understand what the fuck is going on here, let's go to Foucault. In 1966, Michel Foucault wrote an article that is really underread called The Thought From Outside. Mm-hmm. He actually wrote it with Maurice Blanchot, who was another essayist and novelist in France, sorry. And in the same publication, Blanchot wrote an article funnily titled Michel Foucault as I Imagine Him. <laughs> also a really good book, a really good essay, sorry, but far From Outside is even better. And in it, Foucault does this really interesting thing of starting with the problematics of the term, I speak. Okay. Right? Like that coupling of words. And he does this like linguistic analysis of the phrase, I speak. And he says that this phrase basically opens up the potential of speaking to anything. The subject is speaking, but the object is absent. Right? What are you speaking to? What are you relating mm-hmm. to? Who are you speaking to? There's this potential in the words, I speak which of course, by the way, echo I lie, right? A famous Greek paradox. Because if I lie, I'm telling the truth, blah, blah, blah. We might get into that as well. So when I say I speak, it's true. I am speaking, but to whom am I speaking? And that presence of something that is present, but absent, Foucault calls the outside. Are you seeing the Vandermeer connection? I can take it in a couple of directions, but... So bringing it back to Vandermeer, just so I'm not talking for like 20 minutes and I don't even talk about the book... In Vandermeer's Annihilation, there is always this other, which seems to be listening in on the conversation. In different
1: ways, yeah.
0: In different ways, yeah. Like spying on them through the fauna, inhibiting flora, right? Like going into the bodies of plants and of animals. Changing the bodies of the main characters, messing around with their evolutionary paths to understand them. If you think about the koala in
1: the lighthouse. I think if I may start from the simpler, the narrator is the protagonist and the narrator speaks to, if we actually talk about like her speaking, she speaks to her husband sometimes. Mm. She speaks to us like a vague abstract reader. Sometimes she speaks to Area X itself sometimes. And she speaks sometimes to the researchers at Southern Reach. And she kind of oscillates between, like, who this is for. Like, some stuff she reads is obviously not for any... She obviously switches between who she's even talking to.
0: Yeah. And I totally agree with that. But I think that there's always this other listener for the book. And that's one of the feelings of uncanny in the novel. Yeah. There's always this presence that can't really be touched. The only time it's touched is near the end of the book and it only sends like flashes of memories from other places, assumingly where it came from. Well, I know because I read the other (laughs) two books, but in the first book, it's kind of like hinted at. And there's always this outside, something that's not human, something that is not a subject. It doesn't act in the way that we think of subjects. It permeates the area, right? It is what's happening to the Area X, Yeah, The presence is everywhere. It's in the plants, in the lighthouse. Again, if you think about the crawler, the crawler, which is like a snail-like creature, it's like a Turing machine, right? It writes what it touches and then it moves on, changing it. So these ideas of like feasting on, looking from the outside, changing with your look, stuff like that, is something that Foucault talked about a lot and Deleuze as well. Because in that outsideness, in that like relationship, with something that is outside of the subject is is the death and the life of the subject, right? On one end, it's the life of the subject because that's what the subject does. Mm-hmm. It speaks, it talks, it communicates with the outside, but it's the death of the subject because the subject is not there. The outside inherently is alien. Now, a lot of philosophy would say, run away. I'd like, think of Kant. Well, I, I can't say anything about the outside. Yeah. Or Wittgenstein, where one cannot speak thereof, one should be silent, whatever. Like, these things that are outside are not to be spoken upon. Maybe the the domain of the mystic. Although, by the way,
1: Wittgenstein wrote that, but he was fascinated by the occult and stuff like that. He really liked, uh, he was a man of faith and he really liked Kierkegaard. He just didn't want his style of writing. He didn't think that his way of doing philosophy is the right way to approach That which cannot be spoken of. Yeah.
0: yeah. I mean, whenever you talk about Wittgenstein, you gotta remember that the guy despised himself. (laughs) So he has a lot of contrary stuff against himself in his writing, which is really sad, but he was a sad person, I think. So Deleuze and Foucault say, no, 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 go towards the outside. The motion of becoming other is this trick, this action. This perspective that we've yet to learn and we need to learn of how do I strip away the subject, how do I go to the outside, becoming something different, becoming something new, but still maintaining enough of myself so that I can communicate with whatever I find out
1: there. Yeah, and I think the heroine of this book exemplifies this behavior because she is in a horror scenario. But she plays on the whole Freudian element of, like, what we fear is also what we crave, what we fantasize about. Yeah. And she always pushes forward. She's afraid, but she's also, like, fascinated. And to her, like, this encounter is more important. Like, it's so important to walk towards it rather than to just escape, which, like, as a reader, first 50 pages, you're like... Just run away from this. Like, what are you even doing there? And she considers it. It's an option. But she chooses to push forwards because, I don't know, because of the fascination, because of the need to interact with the other.
0: So I want to take that one step further, because that was actually my last point on this subject, and say that she sees the machine. Okay, so so imagine you're on a conveyor belt in a factory. And there's a machine that you know, you can see that every time something enters it, it comes out different on the other side. It is transmogrified into something else. What do you do? So like you said, the instinct is run away. But what the biologist actually does is she dives head deep into it and saying, I will emerge from the other side. I will let myself be modified. I will let myself be invaded. Yeah. I will let the outside kill me, inherently kill the subject, give up myself, but I will become other on the other end. And that other will be more perfect and have more empathy. And now I just want to introduce something from the book. The reason the biologist does this is that she's a biologist. Yeah. Is that she grew up playing in tidal pools, which Jeff has these things that recur for his books, like the term... Floating bodies appears in a lot of his mm-hmm. books but another one is tidal pools it's in dead astronauts and born as well and, and in annihilation so she plays in the tidal pools and she sees uh, starfish starfish right. what, how did I not remember that that's the name but she sees like starfish in this little marine micro life and, and so on and she's already experienced as a child, this experience of having empathy with the animal. Yeah, right? she's not
1: just a biologist, she's like the biologist. She's the the yeah. essential biologist. Yeah, exactly. She's
0: like the perspective of a scientist that goes one step further and empathizes with its subject, which is something you're not supposed to do, right? You're supposed to be
1: like the the scalper. Yeah, the pool you're talking about, like the story is that... It's just a pool that they had on their land and their parents were too lazy to clean it up. But she inherently doesn't think that this pool should be cleaned up. And when she moved, she was afraid that the new owners will clean up the pool. So she has this view that like the life growing within it should be accepted rather than organized and controlled.
0: Yeah. And that's where the cli-fi spin comes in, right? Because environmentalism, because it doesn't break down the subject or because it doesn't see the object as a subject. It has this idea of, oh yeah, like wolves, for example. They should be protected, they should have their own reservations to walk around on, but it will never say something like there should be wolves wherever wolves want to be. Yeah. They have a claim to this land that is just as powerful and just as you Maybe the dingo
1: should eat your baby.
0: Yeah. Maybe... We don't deserve to just cordon off parts of this planet and say, this is where nature is, by the way, doing an area is right? And the book ends, or is it in the second book? I don't want to spoil it too much, but the area doesn't stay contained. Let's just say it like that.
1: That's heavily implied in the first book as well.
0: Yeah, the area overflows its boundaries, right? So maybe we don't get to do that. Maybe you can't do that. Not maybe, 100%, because that's not how nature works. Because nature is not split into two it doesn't stop where the city begins
1: yeah uh, one pet peeve of mine with leftist approaches to climate change is talking too much about deadlines like we only yeah. have 9 years until and first of all nature doesn't work like that and second science tries but can't really know like exactly at what time like we pass some kind of like imagined window and the thing is like this sort of thinking is so dichotomize that it makes you think like we either do a set of steps before the thing and then the thing goes away or we don't do it and then like we get a game over screen and neither of those things is going to happen.
0: So this is where I think we actually wrote the same point but we called it different things mm, Maybe, and that it's the politics of climate change are inherently the politics of the unintelligible right? the place where logic and facts and numbers and, and those kind of things fail, right? which is not to say that we don't need scientists. Of course, we need climate scientists to help us do what we're doing, but we need to understand that so little is actually understood about these phenomena. Yeah, yeah so, so I, let
1: me set up this point, and I think you can go off from it. Yeah, go ahead. So I wanted to talk about facts and logic. Facts and logic is kind of an internet meme It's a kind of assertion that you're better than others because you're supported by facts and logic, but it's also pretty obvious that, I don't know, that something is missing there, right? That sometimes people claim to be using facts and logic, but are also like saying extremely conspiratorial things or stupid things. So how does this connect with the book? Well, the book starts with a description of the expedition. It's the 12th expedition. It's going to go in and there's this whole like protocol, right? They have like plans, and the plans are really well set up. There are contingencies for emergencies. There are like tools. They have different specialists for different things. And in the beginning, the protagonist is very preoccupied by her own objectivity. She says stuff like, oh, we were told not to connect with this too emotionally so that we keep an objective Mm -hmm. mind, things like that. So we've talked earlier on this show about... The science fiction idea of the kind of blank state protagonist that will just yeah. have no preconceptions and will let us perfectly observe the environment, so she begins with the obviously false idea that she's going to be this kind of an explorer, and that idea just breaks down so quickly and so thoroughly upon interaction with area X and how does it break down well. The thing about Area X is that it doesn't conform to enough of our preconceived notions for any of that approach to work. So basically, the scientific method collapses immediately because there are too many unknowns. So she doesn't even know, like, is she in a tower or in a tunnel? She doesn't know if she's dealing with one organism or a multitude of organisms. So much knowledge is missing that the whole infrastructure sort of topples. And the feeling in the book is a feeling of, it's important to be scientific. It's important to be smart. It's important to use rational thinking. Those are tools that she uses throughout the book. She doesn't stop using them. But we have to acknowledge their failure every time we approach something that is big and massive. And what we really want to avoid is the false feeling of control. And false feeling of control is like the history of human interaction with nature since the industrial age. It's thinking that, oh, we understand what makes plants grow, so we'll just engineer the plants themselves, we'll engineer their fertilizers, we'll engineer the soil, and it'll all be okay because we studied it using science. And what we find out is that our science, upon interaction with these huge systems, even not systems that have gone through massive changes like Area X, even just like standard agriculture, we constantly find that there are things that we don't understand well enough and that our, yeah. our science basically falters and that's kind of our downfall. Yeah, so I think the term that we have
0: to introduce here that we've spoken about before on the cast is hyperobject. Vandermeer himself has spoken about reading Timothy Morton. Mm-hmm. and Let me just break it down in case people didn't hear. I think we did it on the cast yeah. before, right? So quickly... Timothy Morton is an English philosopher, and he's part of OOO, Object-Oriented Ontology. We will not be getting into that. (laughs) But he wrote a few really good essays, and one of them is called Dark Ecology, where he basically introduces this idea that climate change is a hyperobject. Hyperobject is an object that, because of its size, attributes, or its relationships with other objects breaks down, melts, as Morton calls it, melts our perceptions of time and space. So it doesn't have to be something really big, but it usually is. For example, a nebula that spans 20 light years. It's not just big, it's inconceivably big. Your entire perception of what is far and near is inconsequential inside a nebula that is 20 light years across. You just you can't conceptualize it. It breaks down your perceptions. Another good example that is opposite, that is tiny, is the atom. The atom is so small, that diagram that you have in your head when I say atom has nothing to do with, quote-unquote, what an atom actually looks like. We can't conceive that, right? It's waves inside of a microscope that then artists render into this diagram so that we can look at it, but it's, it has no relationship with, quote-unquote, the actual thing. Now, why is this relevant? Because climate change is a hyper-object. It is nowhere and everywhere. It is made up of millions and millions and millions of actions. So your impact on it is negligible, but your impact on it is real. You contribute to it. Timothy Morton gives two very powerful examples. One is when you start your car. Like, it's obvious that there is no relationship between the melting of a glacier and you turning that key. And yet, the relationship is there. And the other example it gives is, you're riding on a train, and you look out at a field. And the field is well-cropped, it's been shorn, and it's so beautiful to your eyes, but you don't see the rabbits that got caught up in the combiner as that field was being shorn, right? Now, you didn't kill the rabbit, and yet, you participated in its death. And that's why people don't want to talk about climate change. That's why it's so uncomfortable for them. Because this hyperobject breaks down our ideas about space. Now, that's what happens in annihilation. Area X, or the being behind it, is a hyperobject. It's everywhere. It's in the plants and in the animals and in the air and in the sky. But it's also nowhere. It doesn't really interact with the reality around it, but it influences it in many ways. It doesn't attack anyone directly, but it does change their body all the time. And to bring it back to what you said about facts and logic, the attempt to classify it, understand it, put it in a box, analyze it, is futile, inherently futile. And that's the mood that the biologist comes in with, because again, she's a biologist. She needs a taxonomy, right? She needs to know... The genus and the kingdom, and all those other filia and all those other classifications. But this thing exists below, above, to the side, outside these ideas, and is not relevant. And what Vandermeer is trying to tell us is this is how nature is. You don't need an alien yeah. to experience the hyper object. Just look outside, try to quantify all the interactions happening. On one tree. One tree. That's it. And you'll quickly find that it's impossible. It's an impossible task. Because nature doesn't have boundaries. And trees communicate with each other over hundreds of miles. And guess what? They communicate with you. Your body is influenced by birds and trees and plants and what's in the air and what's in the ground and the food that you eat and the pets that you keep. Yeah, There's this like ongoing otherness, hybridity, flow that we're always under, and that science doesn't really help us understand. Yeah,
1: I think one character we should mention that is relevant to this misunderstanding in our perception of our own nature is the psychologist. Mm -hmm. So the psychologist in the expedition, her role is not to explore Area X itself, it's to manage the expedition, right? Right. And because of that, the psychologist is obsessed with control she programs hypnotic suggestions into the researchers to work them according to her will. These hypnotic suggestions sometimes go so far as to prevent the researchers from observing Area X as it even is, so as to prevent them from feeling too much discomfort. Mm. So the psychologist plays two roles here. One is the role of kind of understanding the perniciousness of You know, societal control and trying to navigate things too strongly, which is part of her downfall. But she also plays the role of seeing how trying to feel safe and structured in our exploration of nature is part of the very reason that our exploration of nature sometimes fails. It is through changing with Area X. That the protagonist, the biologist, transcends basically the psychologist's control and is no longer controlled by these hypnotic suggestions and is able to move forward with understanding more of Area X. And it's not a kind of, you don't get a good picture of Area X through the biologist's mind in this book because it is something unfathomable. But I think if we take this and try to map this to climate change, one way of thinking about it is we are already in an incomprehensible scenario. And what we need to do is to relinquish our illusion of control, a more honest investigation, more honest conversation. And that is the only way possible forward. And I just want to say, when I say the psychologist's downfall, it's interesting because there is no poetic end for any of the characters in the book. It's not like she has a master plan in that master plan phase. No, she just dies somewhere. So I don't want to spoil too much,
0: but this is explored in the novels after. Well, the psychologist is a character, and she has all sorts of like historical ties to the place, to the lighthouse and whatnot. But I agree completely with your analysis that the main character of the second book is actually called Control. Oh. And he, he works for the Southern Reach. And it happens after the first book, and he's like tasked with doing the post-mortem on the expedition. And there's all sorts of taking what you just said about relinquishing control and our desire to like put things into boxes and understand them as detrimental to our way to cope with these things that is explored in these in the sequels. But what I want to maybe like take the last point that you said, this contradiction that in order to get climate change under control, quote unquote, we need to let control go is why climate change is horrific. Yeah. That's the horror of climate change. And that's the horror that is captured in Annihilation. Right? The horror is that here is a thing, and again echoing Deleuze and Cor and all that discussion that we opened with, here is a thing Which is both other, but the only way to get it to stop messing with you is to give into it. The only way to get nature to go back to being this thing that you just live besides, which is supposedly the mythical, idyllic state we lived in in the beginning of the 20th century. The only way to go back to that is to let nature rule. To let it have Its way because whenever we try to augment it, we end up fucking it up, because what we think we understand is actually infinitely complex and infinitely unintelligible to us. And I think we already spoke about this in previous episodes. The whole of this idea of geoengineering, yeah, I think, like blotting out the sun or whatever.
1: It was interesting to me the first time I read it in Naomi Klein's "This Changes Everything," where she says we need to leave fossil fuels in the ground. And that sentence is just, I don't know, it kind of blew my mind in an interesting way because it's you know—it's not we need to assess the exact amount of carbon thrown into the atmosphere and get at the perfect balance, zero emission, stuff like that. She's like, no, we just need to leave nature alone a lot. Like it can't yeah. be trying to, you know, exploit nature to the exact degree in which nature doesn't break. We need to take a step back and obviously we will always have an impact on nature, but we need to try to diminish that impact and try to, to the degree possible, like not interfere with it rather than interfere with it, but in a controlled way. So I want
0: my next point to be my last (laughs) point. So if you have anything else you want to add to the discussion... Yeah,
1: I have two things that didn't... Really segue. Well, one thing is because you talked about how this is horror, and I think it's interesting to contrast this with the supposed father of modern horror, who is H.P. Uh, Lovecraft.
0: And I think. Horrible racist.
1: Yeah, I am going to talk about how he is it a horrible racist. Yeah. So he's kind of a specter haunting horror because, I mean, mm-hmm. if you read him, he did do horror, and you can also, like, kind of see why that was kind of compelling. His writing is very repetitive. He repeats a lot of phrases. He, because he wrote for like newspaper stuff, like his things would be published in like these small publications. So it's like short stories that are meant to jar you. So a lot of it is repetitive, but it is somewhat compelling, especially if you think that something like that wasn't done before him. You can see why he got as famous as he did, but also horror does a lot of different things that aren't Lovecraftian and get called Lovecraftian in a kind of vague way because there is horror. But I think the interesting thing about H.P. Lovecraft is his racism, because he is a horrible racist. And, you know, sometimes when you talk about an old writer being racist, people think, well, people just used to be racist. So if you take a writer, he's racist. That just doesn't mean a lot.
0: Everybody spoke like that back then.
1: Yeah. So first, that's not exactly true. As long as there was slavery, there were also abolitionists, not to mention the actual slaves who had a good idea about how slavery was wrong. But besides that, the racism is not external to his writing. It motivates and informs his writing. So when H.P. Lovecraft writes horror, he has a specific point in mind. The point in mind is the world is scary. We cannot understand it with science. So let us do what I perceive to be traditional. Let us not take risks. Let us not mess with things that seem different from us. Let us be very afraid of things that are different and definitely no sex between people of different races. Like that's yeah, incredibly rough. That's a biggie. Okay, so he knows how to write the horror and we can take that as just a technical skill. So what does he do with it? He sort of introduces horror in places where horror doesn't belong or maybe in places where we, I don't know, some people think that we naturally feel the fear of the other, but he definitely like fuels that fear and makes us feel it more strongly. So mm-hmm. when I read Jeff Van der Meer, it's interesting because I read an Economicon, one of the famous HP Lovecraft books. It's really hard to get through a lot of his writings nowadays. I was just like, I know a lot about Lovecraft, but I haven't ever read one of his things, so I picked up one. Yeah. Like again, I get the technical ability, but the racism is just overwhelming. And Van der reminds me of Lovecraft Not only in the technical, but also in the kind of fascination with the fear of the other, the fear of the incomprehensible, the feeling that science cannot fully understand reality. But the interesting thing about Jeff Vandermeer is that, well, at least (laughs) to the degree that I can suss out from his writing, he is not a terrible racist, he's not a terrible conservative, he's not afraid of change. What he wants to do with horror is to, and you say this sometimes, he wants to make us look at the thing that we're afraid of so that we can transform the way we feel about it. So that we can be exposed to that horror, that we can experience also the fascination that comes with that horror, and that we can move forward. The segue is too
0: powerful. Yeah.
1: (laughs) To, To my last point, which is, what the hell
0: do we want you to do with all of this? Or like, Even more, what does Vandermeer want you to do with all of this? Like, is this just, you know, just in quotes, because that can still be powerful, like an aesthetic exploration of these ideas, just a scary ride through a cool book? And I think the answer is no. And I think the answer is what you just said, right? The idea here is to capture that that we don't want to talk about, and thereof we should be silent and talking about it through a medium called literature, that is able to, like all of art, skip over these limitations that we have and say something that can't be said. Yeah. Right? Like, there are a lot of arguments and discussions about what art is, blah, 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 but I think inherently art is that which articulates something that cannot be articulated otherwise. And that's, I think, what van der is trying to do here. He is trying to articulate the horror of what's coming, what's already here, I should say, the whole of climate change, but also suggest to us an approach. Like the approach of the biologists. Yeah. The last book of the trilogy is called Acceptance. And it sees many of the characters kind of immersing themselves inside of Area X and, and changing even more and accepting a lot of what is to come. And this is like the clincher. I want to read a quote from Deleuze's Foucault. Deleuze has a book called Foucault. Yeah. Well he writes about Foucault.
1: I'll say shortly that one way of reading Deleuze is that he wrote a lot of critical writings about different philosophers. Yeah. It's not a good way to get to know those philosophers because he changes vastly what they try to write, but it is a good way yeah. to get to know Deleuze.
0: Yeah, for sure. So in this segment, he talks about thought from the outside that we discussed, and I'm going to read from the thing. It's Deleuze, so it's hard to understand, but... but yeah, just slowly. Uh, slowly. Slowly. So, the double is never a projection of the interior. On the contrary, it is an interiorization of the outside. It is not a doubling of the one, but a redoubling of the other. It is not a reproduction of the same, but a repetition of the different. It is never the other who is a double in the doubling process. It is a self that lives me as the double of the other. What the fuck does that mean? Yeah. What that means is that when there's a copycat, when there's a doppelganger, when you get doubled, it's not that who you are is now two, right? They took a a copy of you and made a perfect reproduction of that. And it is not... That the second copy is different than the perfect original. It is that both the original and the copy are changed by the doubling process. The original, once it is copied, is no longer the original. It is also changed and made different. Because now, it is a thing with a copy. That
1: just sounds like it was written about (laughs) denihilation. Because... Part of but, what Area X does so, is try to replicate anything that comes into it and even produce clones. Exactly.
0: And the book ends, and also it's not answered in the other two books. And also the point is that it's not answered. Is this yeah. the original? Who comes back from Area X? Is it the original or the copy? And by not answering that question, by leaving it ambiguous, also in the second book and in the third, Van der Meer is telling you what Deleuze is telling you. There is no original anymore. And that's what I want you to do. I don't want you to change who you are in the sense that you grow and you become this person that is now aware of climate change. We need to think, and I have no idea how to do it, but I know that I want to do it. How can we remake ourselves? How can we change ourselves by creating these new personalities and creating new interests and fields of meaning into things that know how to live in climate change. Things that know how to live in nature. No longer is like a split. Have a different
1: relationship with nature, definitely.
0: Exactly. Because when we split off, when we did that bifurcation, when we doubled us and nature, we also changed us inherently. We became something that no longer lives Inside nature, we became something that pretends that it doesn't live inside nature. We became something that destroys nature. And I really think that we need another splitting, right? We need another difference. We need another change to how we think about these things. And I think that's what Vandermeer is trying to tell us with annihilation.
1: Yeah. I have to say that my partner will skewer me if I don't mention that she believes, according to some researchers, that the point of bifurcation is not the industrial revolution, it's the agricultural revolution. So Well, that's a whole So according to her, our epistemology needs to go way back. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with that. I
0: can't not rise to that reference. David Graeber, who we've mentioned on the cast before, wrote an excellent essay together with another guy. Did I mention this on the cast before? Farewell to the Childhood of Man. Well, he basically rails against and challenges the narrative that... It is agriculture that made human societies unequal Mm -hmm. and hierarchical, and that hunter gatherer societies were somehow more egalitarian or Mm -hmm. flat. And their main point is what changed is our insistence on one mode of politics and society. Before agriculture, human societies knew how to oscillate and flow between different hierarchies. In Mm. summer, they would be hierarchical, violent patriarchies. And in winter, they would be peaceful, egalitarian matriarchies, to give one example. People would have different names based on the time of the year, different roles. Religions could stay dormant for dozens of years, and then when surplus hit, they would come to life again. And only when we went agrarian did this idea of we are democrats, we are fascists, we are socialists, we are X one mode become ingrained in us, right? And that's when, this is where I agree, that's when we started to split off from nature because nature is that fluidity, right? It is that change. So here I
1: found the segue to the last point I wanted to mention, and I'll do so briefly. A really interesting theme I think in this book is the permeability of borders so mm-hmm. the idea of the book is that it constantly proposes a border and then shows how that border is permeable so the first border that turns out to be permeable is area x itself so the idea is that we are going into a different place area x that is currently cordoned off it has a boundary and so we're going to enter this place we can exit this place we need to control this place But through explorations, we find out that this place has already permeated into reality way more than, into like the external world, way more than was initially put forward. And then you have the idea, this is the 12th expedition, but we find out that there have been many, many, many more expeditions that weren't categorized or counted or something like that. And basically, and there's the boundary between the body and the invader, the invader form area X, and all of these boundaries turn out to be not places where you can make a distinction, but a place of interaction, a place of mutual change. And I just think this mode of thinking, like thinking about permeable borders, is a challenge. I think it's a big challenge in leftist thought, by the way, because leftists tend to be Idealists, which I mean, having ideals is good. Like, I think standing up for something is good, but it also makes you vulnerable to this kind of boundary thinking, which places you in these kinds of discussions of, like, are you a communist or an anarchist? And somehow, like, this is really important when, like, neither of those societies are close to being implemented. Or, you know, we can't work with these people because they're social democrats and they're so different from us. So the idea with permeable borders is there's a lot in common between every two people, can work on some commonalities while also maintaining borders where they matter. And it's a hard mode of thought, but I think this book really pushes it forward well. Like this idea that whenever you try to posit a dichotomy, you should understand that it bleeds into each other. This is a point from Derrida as well, like that dichotomy is always collapse. And I think this book Kind of exemplifies it really well. I agree. So tell us,
0: what else have you been
1: doing? I told this you this thing? already, but I started watching, and I don't know why, but I started watching The Walking Dead, and I expected it to be just mm-hmm. like popcorn movie bad, but I don't know where this show came from, but it's so good. It's just, it blew me away. And it's good because, well, the reason I hate most zombie, I don't know, media is because zombies are an, they're an unflattering representation of the proletariat, but in Walking yeah. Dead, they're not. Like, that's not the distinction being made. And I usually hate zombie movies because they usually portray individualism and egotism as the right way to go, which I don't like. And this is another thing that The Walking Dead doesn't do. So the main concern of the show throughout is how do people work together when they're no longer managed by bureaucratic power so you have these people in a scenario yeah. where they need to establish trust they need to understand how to work together and like every kind of like individualist approach of like we'll just always be as safe as we can or we'll always exercise as much power as we can it always fails it's always a bad way to go the show Really goes into like protecting the weak and why it's important, how the weak can develop into being strong when given protection and support. And like, as one last thing, I think that if I was trying to like teach or learn about how to create a non hierarchical, non capitalist society, I would use some episodes of this show as kind of like a thinking piece to discuss, like, how was the information communication in this episode bad and got people in trouble? So it's really interesting in how it explores them. And it's not exactly anti-capitalist, but I have to say like it portrays different societies and none of them have commodities. For nine seasons, no commodity yeah. form. That's interesting. There's one time where like points are matty and it's the evil society and it's not even explored very, very far into. Like people just don't even think about establishing Re-establishing capitalism it's obviously like a bad idea
0: what about you interesting well i've been playing a lot of assassin's creed valhalla i know it's not as highbrow as some of these other things but i'm having a fantastic time and actually i think they did a really good job in like you know vikings and viking culture is one of the most misunderstood and misused ideas in modern history like by racists and white supremacists and whatnot And it did a really good job accentuating the interesting and actually radical parts of that culture, like community, friendship, accepting strangers, you know, Odin is the stranger, Mm. and gender fluidity, because Norse culture had a lot of gender fluidity in it. For example, magic is a supposedly female trait, and yet Odin Mm. has magic. And Odin is very often depicted as gender ambiguous and there are many gender ambiguous figures in norse mythology and the game really leans into it and also has like
1: a bunch of but thor can only be male right like that yeah but but thor is a joke that's a rule
0: something that didn't really translate into modern like way of life and thinking about vikings thor is like half a joke he's the bumbling warrior idiot and odin and loki make fun of him all the time now Sometimes he's to be worshipped because he's honorable and powerful, but it's a kind of like a sarcastic, almost, form of worship. Yeah, and the game really touches upon these ideas and does them well. So, uh, thank you for listening. If you want to read more about science fiction and anarchy and all that good stuff, you can go to anarchysf.com, and we will see you
1: next time. Yeah, thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.